This is the Trey Blocker Show, starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker. And now, here's Trey Blocker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Trey Blocker Show. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Mark Jones on the show. Dr. Jones is the fellow in political science at the Baker Institute and the Jamel Chair in Latin American Studies at Rice University in Houston, Texas. His research focuses mainly on the effect of electoral laws and other political institutions on governance, representation, and voting. So, Dr. Jones, thanks for coming on the Trey Blocker yeah, Show today. Having me on. There's a lot to talk about in politics these days, especially in Texas, across the U.S., and across the globe. So I appreciate you coming on the show. Before we get too deep into all of that, I want to give our audience a little background on where you grew up and and where you went to school, how, how you got engaged and interested in politics. Yeah, sure. Well, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was active in politics there from about age 10 or 11, working outside the polls. Uh, my father was very active in democratic politics, as was my stepmother, who later served as a member of Congress from Missouri's 2nd District. Uh, so I've been, politics has been my lifeblood for my entire life, uh, both on the campaign side. On the research side, uh, I uh, went to Tulane, where I was a Latin American Studies and Political Science major. That's my undergrad degree. And then I went up to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where I received my PhD in Political Science. Uh, a lot of my research initially focused on uh, Latin America, where I was very active working in Argentina and Central America. And I always kept my interest in U.S. politics, but not so much on the research side, due to, some, due to really the career dynamics within the academic world, which really prioritizes and rewards people with very narrow uh, interests sure. uh, and doesn't really like people working in too many areas. Uh, so I had to sort of tone it down, tone down my U.S. politics interests uh, until I sort of arrived at RISE, was promoted to full professor, became a chair professor. Right. Now I don't really have to worry about what people think. But I can do what <laughs> I want to do, what I like to do. I like that. On U.S. politics and, and also on Latin American politics. But so now I've been able to really spend a lot of time working on Texas politics, okay. which the way the academic world works, it doesn't really reward people working on politics in a single state. And so it's only when you get to a point in your career where you really have the freedom to do what you want to do. And I have the luxury of being at an institution like Rice, where our president, is uh, President Lebron, as well as Secretary Baker, who runs the Baker Institute, sure. are very supportive of us doing this type of work. That is working on Texas and providing a window on Texas politics that absent this research we wouldn't have. Absolutely. Uh, so, did, so did you mean it when you said you, you get to say whatever you want and you don't, you don't have to worry about repercussions? Oh, exactly. I mean, I think yeah. that is, being at Rice, is, that's a luxury I have at Rice that really most people don't have. If I was at a state university, I'd have to be a little more guarded in my comments. Sure. If I was at a private university that didn't value intellectual freedom and wasn't sort of a high-end research university uh, like Rice, I'd also have to watch what I said. That one of the great things I like about Rice is I can say and interpret things the way I see them, and I know I have the 100% support of both the president as well as Secretary Baker. So they've all, everyone at Rice at the administration has received nasty liberals uh, letters <laughs> from Wendy Davis at one point in time, or Ted Cruz, or Dan Patrick, or Joe Strauss. Right. Uh, but the way I look at it is, if all of those, if Wendy Davis is sometimes angry with me, if Dan Patrick's angry with me, if Joe Strauss is angry with me at one point, that means I'm probably doing my job right because I'm not really satisfying everyone. If I'm angry at everyone at least some of the time, that's a good thing. 
I think you're absolutely right, and and I'm glad you have that academic freedom at Rice. In a recent episode, we had Dr. Alan Sager, who's a political science professor at the University of Texas, and we had a big, long conversation about free speech on college campuses, which, in my view, is under attack these days, uh, not only when it comes to what professors can say, but what students can say, and, and what guests who are invited to speak on the campus can say. So I think it's a real issue. I'm glad you have the freedom that you have uh, at Rice to do the research that you're doing because it's important to the state of Texas. Uh, so without further ado, you, you mentioned Speaker Strauss and that's, that's the buzz. Uh, certainly around Austin where I am, no one at least that I've talked to expected him to announce that he was not going to seek re-election, uh, which means he will not be Speaker in the, in the next legislative term. So did you see that coming? No, I really didn't. Uh, now I knew, we always knew that there was the potential for it. That is, there, I think there were two factors driving the Speaker's decision to not seek re-election. Uh, one is, I think, more on the personal side. So from Joe Strauss's perspective, I'm saying here from his perspective, he believes he's been saving the Republican Party from itself, as well as working in what he believes the best interest of Texas throughout his tenure as Speaker. And he believes that it's a thankless task because for effectively saving the Republican Party from itself, as he sees it, mm -hmm. uh, he gets attacked, he gets demonized, uh, and he's also increasingly unable to do the things he wants to do in the, the legislature. And I think this past session was very instructive in that respect, in that the speaker found himself on the defensive throughout the entire session. That is, he wasn't able to be very positive and proactive and get things he wanted passed. He spent all of his, almost all of his energy in a very negative manner, blocking things that came out of the Senate. Right. And I think looking down the road, he realized that the Senate is not going to change. That is, Dan Patrick's still going to be in complete control. The composition of the Senate, if anything, is going to get a little more conservative if the one remaining moderate, Kel Seliger, loses his election, uh, which is quite possible in the upcoming March primary, particularly with, with people like Mike Cannon and Victor Leal running against him. Sure. Uh, and so I think the speaker could look to 2019 and say, I don't want to go through that again. That is where I have the governor and the lieutenant governor effectively on one side, and then I have to spend my entire session essentially playing defense and, and essentially letting things through that I don't agree with, like the Sanctuary Cities Bill SB4, right. and then getting demonized for blocking other things. That's one thing. The other aspect is, I think, political. The, the speaker realized, and I think Phil King sort of launched this uh, first salvo in that... Phil King is the state representative from Weatherford who has announced he wants to be the next speaker. Okay, right. Sorry, thanks for the context. So he, that, but that's different because the previous uh, challengers really came from the more what now is the Freedom Caucus wing of the party. And they were, they was more, those were always symbolic challenges. There was never any threat that they were actually going to win. Uh, this time with King, I think Strauss believes, wait a second, I could actually lose this race, especially because you could see the tea leaves, and the tea leaves suggested that the Republican caucus is going to pass a resolution to say that we should elect the speaker in the caucus. Now, Strauss could always win if it was done purely on the floor, because right. he had enough Republican support that combined with Democrats could lead to his election. Now, though, if you have the Republican caucus voting for someone else, that makes it very difficult for the remaining Republicans, particularly in the moderate wing, 
to support someone like Strauss going against the party because it effectively sets them up to the next primary. And Strauss also, he's, we're looking ahead towards the March primary, and what's very clear is that um, movement conservatives are gunning for almost all of the moderate members of the Republican House. That sure. is, if, if you look at the most moderate, the moderate quartile of the Republican House, that's the 25% of least conservative Republicans, over 70% of them have conservative challenges, movement conservative challenges. You could go, if you look at the, if you look at the top quarter of movement conservatives, that's the most conservative quartile in the House, only 15% of them have challengers, and only two, and it's really three people, and one of them's kind of a gadfly nut, uh, the <laughs> other two are actually serious challengers. But, right. but the reality is that not only does Strauss look at the caucus and realize, okay, that's going to be a tough vote, but also I may not have several of my supporters in office come uh, come December of 2018 when that caucus vote is held. Sure. So there's a, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said, and I want to do some of that for the sake of our audience. But before I do that, I have a threshold question. Obviously, sitting where I am in Austin, there are a lot of people talking about this. You know, who's going to be the next speaker? How does that play out in the primaries? Obviously, you spend a lot of time talking about it with various media outlets. But let me ask you this. How much do you think the average Texan is paying attention to this, or even cares for that matter? Oh, well, I think, I mean, the proof is in uh, Joe Strauss's name recognition among the general population, where about two-thirds of Texas registered voters have no idea who Joe Strauss is. And he's been speaker now for five terms. So that, this is definitely an inside baseball issue. The Austin watchers are interested in it. Politicians on both sides of the aisle are interested in it, and Republican activists are interested in it. Right. But in the end, this isn't really an issue that involves most Texans. It really involves more than anything else the 1 to 1.5 million people who regularly participate in the Republican primary. They're sort of the key audience for understanding this debate in the House. Sure. Uh, the rest of the population just sort of doesn't care. They, they turn out in November, they vote Republican on average, and they let the chips fall where they may. It's the 1 to 1.5 million people who regularly turn out in Republican primaries that those are the ones that influence whether Joe, a Joe Strauss clone like John Sirwas is the Speaker of the House, or whether it's a much more conservative member, say someone like um, Dennis Bonin or uh, Tam Parker. Okay. Well, and all of that being said, even though most people aren't paying attention to this, it's very important to the future of Texas, how this, how this turns out. Oh, yeah, no, this, I mean, who controls the House has a dramatic impact on the policy direction that Texas follows come 2019. You could sort of create a, a scenario had Joe Strauss not been in, held the speakership and say had Cam Parker held it or Dennis Bonin or even a Phil King, we would be looking at probably we would have some type of school choice in force right now. Maybe right. it would be special needs students, but maybe more broadly. We may very, very well have had a bathroom bill pass. That's right. Uh, we also might have much more restrictions on the ability of, of municipalities to raise people's taxes, uh, and particularly sort of more restrictions on rollback elections. Right now, uh, sort of county governments and city governments can effectively let people's taxes effectively rise just by appraisals. That's right. Uh, rollback that would have been imposed in the last session would have forced those uh, city officials and county officials to automatically go back to voters if the rates were above, or if their revenues increased above 5%, 
those were blocked by the speaker. So those are just some examples where we would have we would definitely have different policies. We'd have policies that are much more in line with those supported by Governor Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Patrick than by the moderate establishment leader of the party, which whose key representative was Speaker Strauss during the past few sessions. Right. Well, in regard to that last issue you mentioned, empowering taxpayers, I think, is a good thing. But I, I guess we'll debate that again next session. So Speaker Strauss is currently sitting on roughly $10 million in his campaign account. What do you think he does with that? Uh, I think he spends most of it supporting the 15 to 25 members of key members of Team Strauss who are going to be subjected to very severe primaries uh, from the right uh, during the March March primary season, perhaps going on all the way to May. Effectively, those are, those are loyal members of Team Strauss who have supported the speaker throughout his speakership, or at least as long as they've been in office. Uh, people like J.D. Sheffield, Travis Clardy, Sarah Davis are just some of the examples. And those individuals are going to really suffer from a lot of the support for Strauss via conservative attacks. And so I think he's going to give a lot of the money to them. In fact, he owes them in many respects because they laid themselves out on the line for him. Sure. Now that he's leaving as speaker, they're looking at a darker future once they get even returned to the legislature. But I think he'll put a lot of his money there. I don't see Joe Strauss running for any higher office, in part because Joe Strauss occupied the third most important office in the state of Texas, Speaker of the House. Right. And had he really devoted himself to it, he most likely could have stayed there. So you don't leave the third most powerful position in Texas to run for to either run as an independent, like a Charlie Crist from Florida for governor that's doomed to failure, or say running for U.S. Congress to be one of 435. Right. I don't see any of that happening. I would agree with that. So I've wondered since his announcement whether his announcing he's not running for re-election results in more challenges in the Republican primary in March from the conservative wing, or if it's going to affect that at all? Well, I think you're going to see just as much, if not more, because now the conservative wing of the party can taste the speakership. That right. is, and they know that the best way to ensure that you have a much more conservative speaker in the mold of a Governor Abbott or a Lieutenant Governor Patrick is by eliminating as many moderates as possible. Because the one threat for movement conservatives is that sort of a, a rump faction of moderates, pulls a polo road game from 2009 that was Byron Cook's house when Joe Strauss and 10 of his colleagues effectively defected on Tom Craddock, who was the Republican speaker from Midland, and allied with the overwhelming majority of Democrats to elect Strauss speaker. Right. And so the math that Republican, many conservative Republicans are going to be looking at is how many Democrats plus how many Republicans gives them 76 votes. And they know that the more of the Republican moderates they can wipe out in the primary season, the, the less feasible it is to essentially follow the 2009 model sure. and elect someone like, say, John Zerwas. I mean, the, the, the only realistic possibility that John Zerwas is from out uh, west here in the Houston area is to be speaker would be to ally with Democrats and a small group of moderate Republicans to just crest over that 76 uh, vote uh, margin and become the next speaker. There's no way that Zerwas would be the choice of the Republican caucus majority. Right. Well, I think that play worked once, and it's not going to work a second time. Just my opinion. Right. Well, because it was, it was easier to do in 2009 because you were, you were competing against a specific person that you could credibly claim had adopted some authoritarian style in-house. Now, 
This time, though, you would be having to do it against the chosen candidate of the Republican majority. That is, someone who the Republican caucus has elected with majority support. That's much tougher for most Republicans to do. There may be, and but that's why the uh, conservatives want to reduce the margin because the smaller you make the the moderate wing of the Republican Party, the less it's going to be harder to find those. I mean, Democrats at most are going to have 62, 63 seats. And that's probably not even that. Be more closer to 61, 62. That you need at least 13 to 15 Republicans willing to defect. And the smaller you can make that number, then you can even mathematically close it off. Okay. So uh, I'd like to get a couple of predictions from you in that regard. Do you think Republicans pick up seats or lose seats? And then the second question is, do you think conservatives within the Republican majority pick up or lose seats? Uh, Republicans are going to lose seats. Uh, the only question is how many seats. There are several seats in Dallas County that are very vulnerable to a Democratic wave. It doesn't even have to be a high wave. Just a small cresting wave of 2 3 4% could really threaten people like uh, a Matt Rinaldi, uh, a Rodney Anderson, uh, Linda Coop, uh, uh, Jason Bialba, as well as Cindy Burkett's empty seat. There are a bunch of seats there in Dallas that could be lost. Right. Houston maybe has one. I mean, there, if you look across the state, there are probably anywhere from five to seven Republican seats that could be lost. The reality is they'll probably lose three or four of them. Uh, but you know, if I had to predict, I'd say the Democrats will pick up anywhere between five and seven seats. Okay. Wow. In the Texas House. And, and then as far as Maybe three to seven seats because we just don't know. Like, but but the, but the I, I mean, Democrats will pick up three to seven seats, but we're definitely not going to see the Republicans. The only seat the Republicans could theoretically pick up would be Victoria Davis' seat up in Dallas. Uh, there's a, I believe it's Metzger is her name, uh, the Republican candidate who's quite strong there. Right. And that would be the only one, and that's just because that's a very competitive seat. Nieve had a DWI conviction or arrest, uh, and Metzger is, if I'm. If, remember your name correctly, is a very strong candidate. Let's remind my audience that there's no way Republicans lose the majority in the Texas House. Oh, no, 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 right. no, no. The, 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 you're, you're looking at a minimum of probably like 88 Republican seats out of 150 and a, a maximum of maybe 92. Right. Okay, Dr. Jones, so who will be the next speaker of the Texas House? That I don't know. In fact, if I had to bet right now, I would say Tan Parker or Dennis Bonin. But <laughs> okay, so Tan let's... Parker from in Dallas area and uh, Dennis Bonin from down here south of Houston. Sure. So for for the sake of those listening who don't know who Tan Parker or Dennis Bonin is, let's take the names out of it. Describe for me the political leanings of the next speaker of the House. That may be easier for you to do. Well, so one way to think about the Republican caucus right now, it has 95 members. Uh, Speaker Strauss is among, say, the 10 to 15 least conservative members of that delegation. So it's he's not at all representative of the median or middle Republican. Either Tam Parker or Dennis Bonin are located ideologically smack dab in the middle of the Republican caucus, which means that they'll represent the general opinion and policy positions of the median Republican. Now, they aren't going to be as conservative as, say, a Jonathan Stickland from Bedford and other members of the Freedom Caucus, but they also aren't going to be representative of the moderate business wing of the party, uh, the establishment wing, people like Sarah Davis, Travis Clardy, 
uh, Charlie Guerin from Fort Worth, uh, Byron Cook from Corsicana, not of that as well. So they're going to be more supportive of conservative positions on school choice, particularly as long as they're carve-outs, so that school choice that benefits the suburbs doesn't hurt rural ISDs. So there you would probably see school choice legislation that's in the mold of that supported by uh, State Senator Charles Perry from Lubbock that provides for school choice in urban and suburban areas that effectively reduces the negative impact of school choice in rural ISDs because due to the absence of private schools and options, uh, it's often seen negatively as undermining the ISDs and most Republicans don't want to do that. Sure. As you mentioned earlier, there is a movement within the Republican caucus to change their bylaws so that they select who will be the next speaker within the caucus, and then I guess they hope that they can enforce that once they get to the House floor. That's never been done before, correct? Well, Speaker Strauss kind of did it earlier on, but not in such a formal way. It's a two-step process. The Republicans, under their caucus rules, can hold a vote. And as long as they change the rules and obtain majority support, that will be the law of the land, at least within the caucus. Now, when it gets to the floor, no Republican will be obligated to respect that decision by the caucus. Nothing in the House rules or the Constitution allows for that. But you can imagine there'll be some pretty serious sanctions for any Republican who effectively sides with Democrats against the candidate chosen by the Republican majority. Now, there, and I don't think, I mean, I don't think there'll be enough Republican moderates to do that, as, but with a caveat, as long as the candidate chosen for, by the caucus isn't seen as unacceptably conservative by the moderate wing of the party. So the one bit of leverage that they have is saying, look, we'll respect this caucus decision as long as you guys don't push the envelope and try to put in somebody who simply is just too conservative for us. That, right. that, and that's where I think, if you, as long as you're talking with someone like Dennis Bonin or a Phil King or a Tan Parker, the moderates are going to be okay with that. That is, they, it's not their ideal choice. They prefer John Zerwas probably, but it'll be acceptable and thus they won't have an incentive to defect because that's kind of the nuclear option for them because they know that it'll come back to haunt them both in committee assignments but also come uh, the uh, March uh, 2020 primaries. Right. So the Freedom Caucus is a group of about 15 House members who have been openly antagonistic towards Speaker Strauss. Do you see them growing in numbers and influence going into the next session? Well, I think you'll, I mean, on on one hand, the the Freedom Caucus may grow a little in size, but its reason for existence was opposition to Speaker Strauss. So so with its reason, since it's lost its raison de droit, or its reason for existing, that is opposing the Speaker. If a more conservative Speaker is elected, I think the Freedom Caucus will still be an important organization, but it won't be as much of an imperative because it won't be constantly sort of acting as a check on a much more uh, moderate speaker. Uh, I'd expect it to grow a little bit in size, but it also, assuming that someone that's more centrist or that's more representative of the Republican caucus is elected, it's also less likely to be in constant conflict with the leadership sure. the way it was in the past. Right. I think it will try to hold whoever that is represent a counterbalance to the moderate wing. Absolutely. So it'll still be a very Right, without a doubt. So shifting gears on you, 
as far as the statewide elective offices, the filing deadline to run in the March primaries is December 11th, so it's right around the corner. Do you expect to see any serious challenger to Governor Greg Abbott? No, I, I mean, on the Republican side, no. The Republican primary is you know, locked down, and that's really the case for all the Republican officeholders. Uh, all the members of the plural executive, the governor, the lieutenant governor, the controller, the attorney general, the ag commissioner, the land commissioner, uh, railroad commissioner, none of them are facing serious challenges within the Republican primary, at least now. And I don't, I doubt it all if they'll see one. There was always a little talk that someone might have challenged Sid Miller, the ag commissioner, not because they oppose him ideologically, but just because sometimes he's an embarrassment to Republicans statewide because of some of the things he says and does. But he's toned himself. I think he's learned over the past, over the course of his first year or of his year and a half. And so we, we're seeing fewer inflammatory statements, although he does occasionally commit a football once or twice. Then you must have missed the suicide joke on, on Twitter recently. Yeah, well, that's why I say he's, he still does it, but he doesn't do it as much. That is, you know, during the first part of his term, he was making essentially antagonizing or alienating people and causing controversy on a weekly basis. Now it's more of a monthly basis. But still, <laughs> when, you look at, when you look at the Republican primary, we're, we're probably only talking about a million, maybe 1.2 million, 1.3 million, at most 1.5 million turning out. Those, you're not going to convince those individuals that you should get rid of Sid Miller because of some uh, tweet or offensive to centrists and liberals and, well, lots of people, but, but you know, in the end, you're not going to get rid of them that way. So with nothing, I don't see any of the statewide officials uh, threatened, and for, we're using for one more election straight-ticket voting. Come 2020, we theoretically will not have straight-ticket voting anymore, but in 2018, it'll still be around. And you're going to have Governor Abbott, regardless of who his Democratic opponent is, running a top-tier 40 to $50 million campaign, professionally done, targeting voters, turnout. He has one of the best and most professional teams in the country right. working for him. Right. And they're going to be playing as if they're going up against you know, uh, the uh, Alabama governor, uh, Democratic gubernatorial candidate. So they're not going to let up. They will thus help Republican candidates from across the state in terms of mobilization and turnout. Uh, there's right now there's no one, uh, you know, even a C-list candidate running against Governor Abbott uh, on the Democratic side. There's some talk right now that's been popping up over the last day that Lupe Valdez, the Dallas County uh, Sheriff, uh, will, will run on the Democratic side. Uh, that's still not much of a threat for Abbott. In some ways, you can see Abbott all, almost welcoming it in the sense that it's much more satisfying to beat up uh, and just you know, sort of win a convincing election against someone who's a credible candidate. You know, he's held offices, the sheriff in uh, Dallas County for, I think, now three terms. Uh, he has like a third term, I think, sure. uh, going to 2020, as opposed to beating up you know, uh, Jeff Payne, you know, the owner of, you know, Dallas is the most popular leather bar, but not known politically. <laughs> so, I mean, so, you know, I, I could see the Abbott campaign actually preferring, you know, someone that they know they're going to defeat, but actually, you know, they'll get some credit. It's like, it's like you're playing Texas up on Baylor versus Texas beating up on Abilene Christian. Right, right. It makes total sense to me. Let's go back to Sid Miller for a second because you brought up some interesting points. In the short four years he's been in office, 
he used state resources to go to Oklahoma to get a Jesus shot. He used state resources to go to Mississippi and watch his horse compete in a horse show. He's been investigated by the Texas Rangers. He's been investigated by the Travis County DA. He's had numerous ethics complaints filed against him. And just last month, the Texas State Auditor criticized him for raising fees on farmers and ranchers by over 100%. So my question for you is this. At what point does the grassroots in the state of Texas decide this is just another crooked career politician and it's time to restore some honesty, some integrity, and some fiscal responsibility to the Department of Agriculture? You know, I think ideally, you know, someone should run. I mean, I, you know, if, if I think if you're a Republican, think, I think if I step back and I say I'm a Republican, I'm a Republican who cares about the Republican Party more generally. That is, I don't just care about, you know, myself, I care about the Republican Party. Sid Miller is an embarrassment to the Republican Party. That is, you know, he's a distract, he's an unwanted distraction for Republicans. So of the current state office holders, he's the one who probably is most damaging to Republicans overall. And if you didn't have straight ticket voting, would be one of the Republicans, well, wouldn't be one, would be the Republican who's most vulnerable. Uh, you know, I think you go back to the reality is, you know, let's, let's remember that the people who knew Sid Miller the best uh, were, you know, in Era County and Coriel County. Uh, those are Republican primary voters who knew him best. And they said, we don't want Sid Miller in our state rep anymore. We're going to go with J.D. Sheffield. Right. So that's I think right. that's really all the information you need to know. That is, the people who really knew Sid Miller the best, his neighbors in Stephenville and Gatesville, uh, in that area that he represented, the, and Republicans were talking, not talking Democrats, Republicans, they said, we don't want you as our state rep anymore. Sure. I would say he's, he's the most vulnerable. And I think if the Republican Party was thinking more about its broader image, uh, they would, you know, they would, uh, sort of, they would sort of think about uh, removing him. I mean, he certainly is a significant cut down from, say, Todd Staples, who was an outstanding commissioner of agriculture, or, you know, uh, Drew DeBerry, you know, his associate. I mean, I, I would have liked to see Drew DeBerry even run, but, you know, but, but, you know, I think from a, you know, Republic, I think from a Republican Party perspective, I have been surprised that the party itself and leaders in the party have not been more active in kind of giving Sid Miller incentive not to run for re-election or if he does decide to run, replace him. Because, you know, he definitely, in, in a more competitive environment, and that maybe come down the road in 2022, he, does, he doesn't help the Republican Party. He tends to hurt it. Right. Well, not only is he an embarrassment to the Republican Party, he's an embarrassment to the state of Texas and he's an embarrassment to the conservative movement. So, but moving on, moving on, let's talk about Ken Paxton. Does he even have an opponent at this point? Uh, as far as I'm, as, on the Republican side, no. There's, uh, there's a Democrat from Austin who I'm blanking on his name. I think that... It doesn't matter. I don't... Yeah, it, yeah it's, I mean, uh, yeah, I think, you know, General Paxton, I think, I mean, initially we might have said he might have been in some trouble, but... Because of, because of the court cases against him, but those have been dragging on for so long. They certainly don't represent a vulnerability in the Republican primary, since most Republicans tend to view it as a political witch hunt. Right. Uh, uh, whereas in, on the Democratic side, I think you know the proof is in the pudding in the sense that if Democrats thought he was truly weak, 
we would have seen a credible Democrat challenged in the uh, attorney general for, to run for attorney general, and we haven't seen that. And I think that the reality is that most that for most Democrats, uh, Paxton has weathered uh, the le his legal problems uh, surprisingly well. That is, uh, they really haven't seen been much of a negative hit on them. And that, you know, in part, he's been advantaged by the fact that a lot of people have focused less on the charges against him and more the reality that you know the prosecutors that Collin County was forced to hire to the special prosecutors are you know already millionaires and they're making you know they're making hundreds of thousands of, you know, right. from Collin County. So instead of you know Collin County parks being spent on police enforcement, they're having to pay these uh, rich lawyers from here in Houston who you know might use the money to buy a Rolex or to you know rent a, take a private plane over to uh, Aspen, but yeah, not, nothing else. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, we haven't talked much about the Texas Senate. The Republicans have a solid majority. There are a few races uh, in the Republican primary coming up that are competitive. So one of them being Senate District 30 with Senator Craig Estes, longtime incumbent, and Representative Pat Fallon, and Senate District 31 with Senator Seliger, and then there's the open seat over in Senate District 8 in Collin County, where we see the Attorney General's wife, Angela Paxton, going up against Senator Huffine's brother, Philip. So how do you see some of those races playing out? Well, I mean, I think, you know, yeah, I think all the actions really going to occur in the Republican primary. The only race in the general election that's remotely competitive would be uh, SD10, uh, that's Fort, uh, Fort Worth or Tarrant County, where Connie Burton will get challenged uh, most likely by Beverly Powell. Uh, but Senator Burton's done such a good job, I think that she's going to be very tough for a Democrat to beat, although she, she is going to have to campaign hard simply because uh, Donald Trump is a drag on the Republican ticket. Uh, not a huge drag, depending on your district, but she's going to have to campaign there. In terms of the primaries, I think the most vulnerable of the two incumbents would be Senator Seliger. Uh, and he runs a serious risk of suffering the same fate as Senator Bob Dool uh, back in uh, it was 2014. That's right. Uh, where he was, he effectively, there, Senator Bob Hall defeated him in East Texas District. Uh, so Senator Seliger has to run a, a two race, both against Mike Cannon from down in Midland, as well as Victor Leal, who's up more from Amarillo, that part of the District 31. It's a huge district, so starts up in Amarillo, loops down along the border, and then cuts over to Midland, Odessa. Right. Uh, and Seliger has to worry because we know turnout's going to be light in March, but it's going to be even lighter in the May runoff. And this race looks like it might go to a runoff because Seliger has two solid opponents, as both Cannon and Leal are serious candidates. And our likings in Cannon came within about 5% of defeating Seliger in a face-to-face -face match uh, four years ago, and that was after Cannon launched his race very late. He, this time around, he launched very early. Back then, he launched right at the end of the filing deadline in December and was never able to sort of catch up to Senator Seliger, who had a real money advantage as well. Sure. This time around, Cannon launched his race much earlier, and he also is joined by Leal. Leal may finish third, but uh, he could finish second, but even between Cannon and Leal, they're likely to force Seliger to a runoff. And in a runoff, you have to favor the opponent, given that you're going to have an even more conservative electorate. Uh, in terms of, I think SD30 is a difficult race for Senator Estes, in that 
you know, Senator Estes and Senator Seliger are probably two of the only, or really are the only, the two only, the, the two only remaining moderates or centrist conservatives in the Senate. So with the uh, departure of uh, Senator Duncan to take the reins at Texas Tech, right. Senator Williams to go work for A&M, and now he's coming up to work in uh, the Capitol. Uh, Senator Eltai uh, retired. Uh, Senator Corona and Senator Duell defeated in primaries. We've seen sort of the moderate wing of the party disintegrate. Estes is sort of, was always sort of a quasi-member of that group. He served as between there and sort of the more conservative group. Seliger was a clear representative of it. I think they're both vulnerable. Seliger more vulnerable than uh, than Estes, uh, but they're still both vulnerable. And in part, Fallon's a very strong candidate. So I think Estes, while Estes might be stronger in theory, uh, he also faces a very strong challenger in terms of that balance. So we could see the end of all moderates, uh, centrist conservatives, in the Senate if both Estes and Seliger lose. Right. And in terms of uh, the Huffines, uh, Paxton, that's a tough one to call. I would say Paxton probably has the advantage both because of her husband's ties and the fact that much more of that district is in Calhoun County, where she's from, than uh, Dallas, where uh, Mr. Huffines is from. And in the end, you know, Collin County uh, Republicans are a little jealous of you know their Senate seat. Right. They may not want to see it in the control of somebody from Dallas County. That's exactly right. So it's going to be fun to watch, right? Oh, very fun, very fun. And, uh, and actually, you know, when we think about primaries, you know, the primary season is the most interesting time in Texas politics. That's where all the action is. That's where power is decided. That is, the real direction of Texas politics isn't decided in November. We know it's going to be a Republican. We know pretty much know Republicans are going to win every race statewide. They're going to win between 19 and 20 of the they're going to hold 19 and 20 of the Senate seats. They're going to win somewhere between 88 and 93 or 94 of the House seats. What the, but it's in the primary that determines which Republicans go. Is it going to be the more conservative Republicans or the more centrist conservative Republicans? That's right. So, Dr. Jones, we're quickly running out of time. As I mentioned before we got started on this episode, we could sit here for two hours and talk about this. But I do have one more question for you. As I mentioned at the outset of the show, you are also the chair of Latin American Studies at Rice, and a lot of your research focuses on Argentina. So tell us briefly what's going on in Argentina these days. I know they just came out of a, a huge election cycle. And, and what are we in, in Texas and the U.S. able to, to learn from their experience? Well, I think first sort of the, the context is uh, from 2003 to 2015, Argentina was governed by a populist set and very left-wing set of presidents. First Nestor Kirchner and then his wife, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner who was president until 2015, that took the country on a very left-wing course. They uh, nationalized and expropriated a lot of uh, private industry. They regulated the economy or essentially imposed themselves on the economy. Right. And they engaged in a massive amount of corruption. For instance, right now, the number three in the, uh, the Fernandez de Kirchner administration, a man named Julio DeVito, is today behind bars because of some of that corruption. But sure. it was corruption on a massive scale. Then on December 10th, well, in December 2015, a new president, Mauricio Macri, took over, who has a much more pro-business, clean government, good government perspective, and he's been battling to reform the system because, really, Cristina Fernandez drove a ditch, and it's really deep ditch, and Macri has spent his first two years essentially pulling it out of that ditch. Right. And I think voters like what he's doing because they just had midterms, midterm elections uh, this past October, where uh, President Macri's party received an overwhelming uh, boost at the polls, 
and it was a real sort of a referendumized administration, and the voters said, we like what you're doing. And so he looks to be very set for re-election in 2019. So what a lot of us are saying, sort of going back to the great James Baker quote from the 1984 Reagan campaign, it's morning in Argentina. Right, exactly. Uh, which is the way Reagan contrasted things to both to the Carter era, saying, unlike the, you know, it's morning again, sun is shining, uh, things are looking good. Not like it was under Christina Fernandez de Kirchner for Mockley or under Jimmy Carter for Ronald Reagan. Exactly. So is there anything we can learn from their experience? Oh, I mean, I think what you can learn from their experience is that, probably, I mean, there's not too much, but I think when, when a country veers too far to the left, uh, it creates massive economic problems. Uh, that is, I think more than anything else, people and businesses are smart and they will adapt. And so if government tries to control investment and tries to regulate what they're doing, people are much smarter than the government is. So you can kill business very quickly. You may get a short-term boost by essentially confiscating people's wealth, but people aren't going to let you confiscate their wealth forever. And so what happened in Argentina is people stopped investing. They sent their money out of the country. Right. What soybean farmers would do is instead of sending their, their soybeans to market, they had these big uh, uh, sort of nylon bags called silo bolsas or you know silo bags. And their farm, they would just have hundreds of them in their farms. They would just keep the soil there. And they wouldn't export it, so the government didn't make, it, make any money. Or sure. you, you always think about Argentine steaks. That's Argentine's known for, for its beef. Right. The Fernandez administration killed off the beef industry. Now Paraguay exports more beef than Argentina does because there are price controls. What do farmers do in their price controls? They kill, kill the cows. Right. It's amazing. Well, history has taught us time and time again that socialism does not work. I, I just wish we could teach U.S. millennials that lesson. And I hope, I hope you're working on that down at RISE. Dr. Jones, we, we've run out of time. As you know, it's a tradition here on the Trey Blocker Show to end with some words of wisdom from our guests. So do you have something to share with our audience? Okay, well, I'll share one of my favorite verses. I'm additionally being a political science professor. I'm also a deacon at my church, River Oaks Baptist Church. And so the, uh, this verse comes from John. Uh, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. I love that verse. Dr. Mark Jones, political science professor at Rice University, thank you for coming on the show, and I hope you join us again sometime and share more of your wisdom. It would be my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the show as well. Thank you, sir. And thank you all for watching this episode of The Trey Blocker Show. If you liked what you heard, please go to YouTube and subscribe, iTunes and Google Play and subscribe. Thank you very much. This has been The Trey Blocker Show. If you like what you heard, please visit TreyBlocker.com for more episodes and a chance to donate and support the show. Thank you for listening.